um, to continue worshiping the Lord this morning. Um, if you're visiting with us, you can find your in place. Um, in God, Matthew's Gospel, um, chapter 6, is, uh, we have been working our way through um, what is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This morning, uh, we will look together at verses 19 through 24. And again, if you can have in your mind a picture of our Lord preaching in the hills of Galilee with thousands sitting around him. It's when Jesus saw the masses following him, having fed 5,000 men, along with women and children, supernaturally. He had been healing anyone, practically, that he, became, he came in contact with. So, seeing those crowds, Jesus actually withdraws, and we're told in chapter Four, that when he does withdraw, he sits down in chapter 5 and teaches his disciples. There are also, uh, of course, Pharisees there that he is addressing indirectly regarding their false views of devotion and what it is to be a, a follower of the one true God. And here now, in verse 19, Jesus talks about treasure. And the word of God reads, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your living word. Jesus, as you prayed to the Father when you were on earth, you prayed that your people would be sanctified in the truth, for your word is truth. Impart to us now, Lord, the grace to have understanding, to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and enable me by your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit to communicate the glorious truth that is before us this morning. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Many of us have or used to play a game where you would hold a baseball bat against your chin, you would stand upright, and you would look up at the handle of the bat, and you would begin to spin, turn in circles, attempting to stand in one place, focusing on the handle of the bat. Then you would drop the bat, and you would attempt to walk in a straight line from point A to point B. And the goal was to maintain your bearing. And to do so, you have to focus on your locus. Locus is Latin for place. You have to focus on your locus so that you will not lose your bearing. Wherever your eyes are focused will help you from losing your place. You're bearing. And that is what Jesus is concerned with here. The locus of his disciples' focus. 
So I asked the question this morning, what is the locus of your locus? Locus of your focus. What is the locus of my focus? Not what is the place of your place, but what is the focus of your place? Where is your life fashioned? Okay, as recipients of sovereign divine grace, as blood-bought saints, okay, only if you're a Christian here this morning, if you are a Christian, you are a purchased possession, forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of the Father on the cross, purchased you for himself. You are, the Bible says, the apple of his eye, so he asks, where is your eye focused? as a recipient of grace. What is your gaze fixed upon? Where and what is your treasure? Now, Jesus in this sermon, once again, shifts his attention as we move into verses 19 to 34. Well, he's been dealing with heart issues, there's no doubt about that, no doubt that he's been digging. He's uncovering. Who? Who's he uncovering? Primarily his own people. His disciples. He now moves to, 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 to deal even more deeply, directly, with the hearts of those that are his. Now, having just warned us as we looked last time, uh, Jesus was seeking to, to, to point out the dangers of seeking men's praise, of seeking men's approval um, regarding devotion and how we pray and how we serve and the motivation behind those things. Jesus now warns against coveting the world, coveting goods of the world. And uh, the people that he's speaking to uh, were Jews, of course, and they were incredibly devoted to outward devotion. And they also expected in their Messiah a, a prince who would provide happiness and prosperity, a people who had for years been oppressed by um, outside forces, uh, governing powers, and so on, anticipated that the reign of Messiah would provide a high degree of worldly affluence. This is in their mind. This is their hope. That he would provide them abundant riches, much honor, and unending pleasure on earth as he ruled from a throne, in their mind, from Palestine. But Jesus is once again exposing their error, declaring that happiness that he imparts is not carnal, but spiritual. It's deep. There's a certain contentment that he provides, a certain kind of peace. And this kind of happiness and this kind of contentment is not found in a physical kingdom established on a temporarily cursed earth in Palestine, but in an eternal kingdom. That is heavenly, eternal. So the Lord speaks to us of something that is no less of a challenge for us 2,000 years later, amen? And that is prosperity and material comfort is a great struggle for those of us who live in America. Now, many believers have endured, no doubt, uh, the test of scarcity or even poverty, but many of those who've succeeded in that area have fallen hard in times of plenty and in prosperity. It's hard to handle. It becomes an idol. Now, there are two great opponents to genuine devotion for God. That of living our lives by faith. And the first is traditionalism. That's the first opponent. And the second is materialism. Both carry with them the potential to alter our responsive love to God. It never changes his love for his people. But the reciprocal love that we love God with in return has a tendency to, to shift our devotional mindset. Traditionalism distorts the very definition of devotion. Distorting what God really wants from his redeemed people, and that's a devoted heart. That's why he's digging so deeply here. So that's what traditionalism does. Um, whereas materialism encourage us, encourages us, or fools us, I should say, to divide our allegiance. 
between two things. Between God and goods. You know, deceiving us or convincing us that uh, we can submit part of our heart to this God who redeemed us and the rest to possessions. That's the trick. That's the deception. That's the temptation. Now, last time we see that Jesus already addressed the spiritual tripwire of traditionalism when it comes to, to prayer, as well as the rut of narcissism, praying like the pagans. He now transitions to this age-old foolish fantasy that tells us that true peace of mind, true contentment here on this earth is found in the package of things that we can see, touch, and amass for ourselves. And so we hear God's holy word in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures where, beloved? In heaven. So Jesus is using a play on words here, which is interesting. The words lay up here means to amass treasure. So he says, quite simply, don't treasure treasure. Don't treasure treasure. Now, all that Jesus has to say in verses 19 to 34 has to do with treasures of the heart, beloved. Jesus is concerned with teaching us the single focus that his people must have. Because you're the apple of his eye, once again. He came after you. He called you to himself. He granted you the faith to respond. The gift of salvation. So he's always going to be challenging his people, digging down deep and exposing what we're focused on. For his glory primarily and for our good secondarily. And this is for your good. This is for our good. Now, throughout his sermon, it makes sense why Jesus began with the Beatitudes. Amen? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the pure in heart. So on. Because what he's doing is describing the character of those that he comes to save. The Sermon on the Mount, once again, is not a prescription on how to get saved, but rather is a description of those he has saved and is continually sanctifying. We all fail in the Sermon on the Mount, amen? But this is what he's making you to be. This is what he's making us to be. So having called us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, he's now calling us to think. That's what he does with his people. He calls us to think. And he exhorts us in the way of meditation for the sake of application. Now, notice there's three warnings. There's three contrasting points that Jesus makes. Number one is that there's two kinds of treasure. Two, two kinds of vision. And thirdly, two very different kinds of masters. Notice in verses 19 and 20, we see two kinds of treasure. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. So here's a contrast between a positive and a negative command. The issue is not whether we treasure something. That's not the issue. The the issue is where we treasure something. What is the focus or the locus of our focus? What are we focused in on? What are we honed in on? What, what drives us um, passionately? Now, in Jesus' day, we, we, we can't forget the first century audience, um, treasures on earth basically meant keeping a watch over some hole in the ground or some hanging silk garment. Because they didn't have banks like we do. They didn't have treasury deposit boxes like we do. Their treasury deposit box was a hole in the ground in a field somewhere, or under the mortar of uh, the floor of your home. So they would bury family treasures, uh, family heirlooms in the ground. They would take garments, which in that day were handed down, fine silk garments, were handed down from generation to generation, and they would wrap them up, and sometimes they would bury those as well, or hide them um, in a wall somewhere, or hang them um, in the home. 
Now, all of these treasures listed here were extremely vulnerable, and that's Jesus' point. They were prone to decay, and they were prone to theft. Coins, for instance, were were mixed with inferior alloy, and if they were buried in the ground, would oftentimes corrode. They were subject to erosion, subject, in other words, to rust. Silk garments would be devoured by moths. They didn't have mothballs in this day. And uh, they were subject to being attacked or devoured by moths. Um, Another treasure in this day uh, was found in grain or in crops. And if you store up grain in crops, uh, there's a potential for rodents, rats, and mice to not only eat it, but to make a mess in it and, and cause a disease. And if that didn't do it, It was always subject, all these things were subject to a man with a pick and a shovel to come and dig up or plow through the wall of a home to enter in and search for a hidden treasure, a thief. So the people in this day knew all too well the short-lived nature of those things that make up for earthly treasure. Now, what's our treasure today? We don't bury coins and we don't hand down garments for the most part. Uh, it could be a car, the iron horse, iron chariot, a home, property, uh, vacations, investments, success. Here's one sports team. Now, we learned last time that our treasure on earth can actually be human approval. And in context, human approval with regard to our religious devotion. Trying to gain the applause of friends. Craving that, Jesus says, more than God himself. Although he's actually used as the the facade. Godliness. But devotion isn't for him. It's for the applause of others. He says here, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. He's counseling us here to make the joys and blessings of the eternal world the priority of our lives, to make those things the first things that we truly desire. He's calling us to think. That's what sanctified Christians do. They think. They, they look at the scripture. So the point of the issue, of the image here of treasure, is that it is a waste of life to live for the things that have no spiritual or eternal impact, no eternal significance or importance. It is a waste. That's Jesus' point. How easily will it, how easily we fall here, beloved? They don't mean anything. They're temporal. They're fleeting. They're passing. Everything, beloved, is subject to decay as these things are exposed to the elements. Your body that you dwell in now is subject to decay, but the real you lives forever, redeemed. Therefore, we must redirect our locus, our focus. I mean, why would we of all people who've been eternally awake and treasure or live for things that have no eternal significance whatsoever? Where our thinking becomes skewed, that's how. That's how it happens. So the implication here is twofold, beloved. Number one, some of God's people do live this way. Some of God's people will live this way. And the majority of their efforts in this life will be tied up in things that do not matter in the long run. That's implication number one. The the second implication is this. It will always disappoint. Always. So what then are these treasures of heaven that Jesus is referring to? Well, he's not just talking about eternal life, beloved. Although... uh, That's the biggest of them all. Uh, For without the gift of eternal life, we couldn't experience the heavenly treasures which Jesus is referring to here. But treasures in heaven doesn't mean treasures uh, after this life either, although that could be included. What he essentially means here by treasures 
is treasure that comes from God for those who are with God, relationally. He's speaking of all these blessings of heaven that God brings into our lives. Right? Ephesians 1, you've been blessed with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They're yours now. That's why Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. They are spiritually rich and they were living like spiritual pulpers. So he has to remind them. He has to stir up their thinking. This is what you have. Every spiritual blessing. Peter, for instance, he he writes to a church under heavy persecution. Listen to what he says. This explains it quite well. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to what, beloved? To be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, he says, you rejoice. Though now, now don't miss this, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." How does Peter encourage a suffering church? He doesn't remind them of the house they live in, the chariot they have, the number of horses they have, the number of coins they have buried in the ground. He turns their eyes towards the heavenly, towards eternal things. And it all begins with salvation. So here, we have to ask ourselves this. Do we treasure forgiveness? Do we treasure truth? You can say yes, do we though? Let's, he's examining us, beloved. Okay? Do we treasure this? Do we treasure the mystery of the cross? Do we treasure unconditional love? Do we, do we treasure grace and mercy and Christian friends and Christian fellowship and Christian kindness and compassion and eternal glory? Do we treasure those things? What about godly virtues? Do we value, beloved, the fruit of being justified by faith? as much as we value being justified by faith? Do we fail to see biblical imperatives, that is, the biblical commands of Scripture, as anything less than grace-filled blessings? Do we value both the indicatives and imperatives of Scripture? That is, uh, the, the, the indicative, the declarative truth that deems you righteous and forgiven. Do we embrace and treasure that truth as much as we do the commands of Scripture for those who are in Christ? Do we treasure these things? Do we value the fruits of the Spirit? You know, do we look at our children and say, thank God I see my son or I see my daughter growing in Christ-likeness, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, or are we more excited when, when they succeed in sports or academics or when they're grown in, in some particular career? What do we treasure? That's the question. Do we look at one another and say, man, I thank God that that brother or sister is growing in faith, hope, and love. I rejoice. That's a heavenly treasure. She's growing in the knowledge of Christ. He's grown to to be free and set free from holding on to his money. He gives to Christian ministries. Do we thank him for answered prayer? These glorious treasures of heaven. Do we thank him for our eternal security? Do we thank him for our Father's love? Do we treasure the peace that we have and the joy that we have in Christ? Do we treasure these things? Do we rejoice and do we treasure knowing that we will share in the ultimate victory with one another in the end? Do we treasure this? Or are there other desires that seem much greater? Other things that that demand our time and demand our passion. 
Now, as the Lord Jesus preaches here, beloved, he is giving us a chance to take stock of our heart. This is what a loving Savior does. This is what a true preacher does. This is the preacher of all preachers. He wants to search ourselves out. He wants us to think about the locus of our focus. To allow the Spirit to search us, to search our hearts. Where are our affections located? That's what he does. You know, many Christians in our day don't like hearing preaching that is too personal. Even when it's Jesus that's doing the preaching. <laughs> there's, an, there, there's this old adage that expresses um, how many people feel in our day when the preacher gets a little too personal. You know, they say, well, if he speaks in general terms, uh, when he's preaching, uh, you know, that which people approve of, uh, that's Okay. Remind me that I'm saved. That's all I want to hear about. But if he gets too personal, if he speaks of areas of real sin and in real worldliness that actually grabs and grips people, they say, that's not preaching. That's meddling. Jesus is meddling. They say that's a tangent. Jesus is on a tangent. In the book of Hebrews, that, the writer of the book of Hebrews, whoever he is, does the very same thing. He meddles and he begins with reproof in, the chapter, in chapter 5 of Hebrews. Go read it later today. Now, he's, he's explaining that he cannot proceed in his exposition because his recipients have become dull of hearing. And he said this, You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food indicating in that passage that these were not recent converts. These were not new believers. Because he says, he goes on to say, you ought to have been teachers by now. In other words, he's saying, you, the Hebrew people in this church, you should have been ministering to one another, teaching one another of these glorious truths. They are unskilled in the word of righteousness, he says. The single-minded aim of the writer of Hebrews, is that by faith in Christ, we, beloved, must persevere to the end. The writer of Hebrews knew exactly what Jesus meant in John chapter 17 when Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is what? Truth. He sanctifies us by the way of the mind, the entrance to the heart, the entrance of transformation to my soul and your soul is the mind. Truth must enter through the mind. The question is this, what is it that shapes us? What shapes my thinking? What shapes my belief? What controls that which is going on in my heart? Jesus is preaching to address our desires. He is meddling. Do we say amen to that? We should rejoice in this. He is describing a life that sets us free to live for God. Because being attached to treasure here will cause you to be someone else's slave, as we shall see. But being a slave to Christ, beloved, is where there's true freedom. True freedom. True deliverance. Focusing and treasuring on things that are eternal, you'll never lose stock. You'll never be taken in some Ponzi scheme. Ever. This is eternal. Because heavenly treasure is not corruptible. He's teaching that heavenly treasure is eternally secure. He says, I want you to think. Notice, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What? Also. The heart cannot be in two places at the same time. That's what he's referring to here. It's an either or proposition. So this is a warning as much as it is a fact. So in order to discover what your treasure is, all we have to do is follow our heart. Here's a test for all of us. Where do I give most of my time? To what do I give most of my effort? Where is my passion? Where do I spend my money? What is my labor tied up in? What are my emotions attached to? Because it's there that you will discover your treasure. It's there that I discover my treasure. 
So what tells us most about a person is not the nature of the treasure, but rather the location of the treasure. Is it here on earth, or is it eternal? Now, is there anything wrong with possessions, beloved? No, absolutely not. I mean, we all enjoy things. Many of you enjoy gadgets, especially if you're from the younger generation. You enjoy gadgets. Gadgets are cool. Apple's cool. Apple always comes out with something to replace the something that came out next month, last month. And there'll be something next month. Almost. There's nothing wrong with gadgets. I, I, like, I like shiny, fast stuff. <laughs> it's motorized. I'm old school. Many of us like sports stuff. It's not the Lord's call that we that we throw it all into a pile you know, and move into a commune somewhere, right? And they just share it all. That's not the point. Now, Christians have erred on that side by doing just that. So there's a world of difference between having and treasuring. This is about loving. This is about serving. What do we love? What do we serve? So we must ask ourselves, as your earthly blessings are in front of you, Are these, in my mind, simply a means to which I can provide for my own, to bless my brethren, and advance the the, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or is this where I find my joy? Is this where I find my pleasure? This is the thinking he's trying to stir up within us. The Puritans used to say this, Let us use the world, but enjoy the Lord. And in our pampered American culture, we flip it. And we often say, let us use the Lord, but enjoy the world. You see, treasure always claims affections. It undeniably claims our affection. Whatever we truly value is what draws us. Whatever we truly treasure holds us. It maintains our affections. That is where the center of our affection will be. What holds us. Let us use the world but enjoy the Lord. We can't treasure two things, beloved. That's Jesus' point. We can't treasure two places. Notice next in verses 22 and 23, we see two kinds of vision. Two kinds of vision. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So the image of the eye here is is, is provided to express the danger, beloved, of living this way. Isn't he just a masterful teacher? Jesus, the teacher of all teachers, is just phenomenal to read scripture and to see how he causes us to think. He says, your eye, it's translated here healthy. It's literally if your eye is single. Okay, If your eye is healthy, if your eye is single, your whole body will be healthy and your whole body will be full of light, not darkness. If it's single, that is if you have single focus, a focused vision, seeing single imagery, you'll see things as sharp, you'll see them as clear, and your whole body then will be healthy. That is full of light. If you see double, right? Try to get to point A to point, from point A to point B seeing double. Try to drive down the road seeing double, right? You don't get very far. You you crash into one or the other. Or you escape crashing one or the other. That's seeing with a distorted lens, seeing with blurred vision or hazy vision or seeing with a cloudy eye. The whole body then, Jesus says, is full of darkness. Now, does the eye actually produce light, beloved? No, it doesn't actually produce light like a lamp. Jesus is using an illustration here. And he's saying this, the eye is the lens that allows light in. And as the the, the lens of the eye uh, allows light in, it provides imagery to the brain. It provides vision. And if you see well, your body, he says, will be able to function well. 
If you see dull or you see double, you will be dizzy and you will fall down and stumble and stagger and your body is full of darkness. Single vision then is necessary if we are to function effectively. In other words, vision determines condition. How is it that we see? If the light in you is darkness, how great, Jesus says, is that darkness? If the perception, uh, my perception of the world is darkened by worldly treasure, materialism that is, it, 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 will, equiv- it will cause me to, to stumble and stagger and to think incorrectly, to react unbiblically. We'll be blind to the things that really matter as a believer. Remember the, Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 12. In verse 15, he said, take care. Notice this again. Be on your guard. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentiful. See, isn't it great that Jesus provides us the stories and I don't have to come up with them all the time? It's just better to use his stories. And he thought to himself, that's a problem. If we start thinking to ourselves, and our, 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 our eye and body is dark and that's a problem, he says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So here, valuing and treasuring and focusing on earthly treasure is to walk blindly. It's like investing in something you think is going to produce enormous returns, but then the the big surprise comes. But, verse 20, God said, Fool, This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich. Toward who? Toward God. He's the king. He has all the riches. So may my focus be reciprocal in response to what he's already provided. That's his teaching. Treasure those things that provide eternal dividends. Because we can't treasure two things. We can't treasure two places. And notice verse 24. We cannot treasure two masters. Verse 24. No one. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and money. Now, when he uses the word serve here, he's not merely talking in the sense of two jobs, right? You have your day job, and then you moonlight at night, and you have a master in the morning and a master in the evening, and you can serve them both and function as a good employee. But that's not what he's talking about. The context here is first century. That is the context of slavery, Slavery of the ancient world was owned by one lord, small l, or master. Belonged to one, not two. And you would serve him alone. It was your duty, it was your life. Time and possessions were not your own. Everything belonged to that master. And that's the point that Jesus makes here. It's impossible to be the slave of two. You will love one and despise the other. Cannot serve God in money. Uh, Translated mammon. So it's much more than just money. It has to do with possessions, beloved. Possessions. It can be anything. Your heart, affections, your love cannot be in two places at the same time. So whatever and wherever one's treasure is, is usually what he or she will bow down to. That's what we worship. So worship isn't merely singing, amen, we know that. Worship is, is, is bowing down. It's, you know, where is our allegiance given? To whom? To what? 
You can only serve one. And Jesus said, you only do serve one. You can only serve one and you do serve one. Now, let's remember this. There's two aspects to the Christian faith. Number one, as a redeemed saint, as a child of God, he is your heavenly father. He is Abba. We learned that last week. He is Abba. He is Papa. Very intimate picture. You are children of the Most High. You are adopted heirs to the throne. Everything that he has is yours because of the one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. So we're children of God. That's the first aspect of Christianity. The second aspect of Christianity is that of a slave. A slave. And do you know typically where you read in the New Testament servant or bond servant? That, is, that comes from the word doulos, which means slave. It's been, just been mistranslated and it should be slave. Because we are slaves. We've been set free. See, as redeemed people, that means you've been purchased. By a master. He is our master. We've been delivered from sin and death, beloved. From sin and death to righteousness and life. This is what we have. By grace, through faith. So the the slave-master relationship here was clearly understood to this first century group of people. And we ought to be reminded of the original context here so that we understand something of the treasure that we have. A delivered people. A purchased possession. So whose slave are you this morning? Oh, you're, 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 you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. But whose slave are you today? Because you see, everybody serves something. Everybody serves somebody. Now, the reason, beloved, that Jesus is so adamant over this issue in this text is because the question of focus governs the, na- the, 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 the nature of our entire life on a daily basis. He's concerned about this. Everything flows out of this passion for treasure. We cannot love two opposite things. Jesus makes that clear because love is exclusive. Love is demanding. Love always insists on the absolute best because he's given us his best. Where is love made manifest? At the cross of Jesus Christ. You know what the, the, you know what the locus of focus was for Jesus? A cross. Calvary. What did he do? He set his face as a flint towards what? Towards Jerusalem. To make his way to the cross. Single-mindedness. One master mentality to do the will of the Father. And that was to atone for those that God chose for himself before the foundation of the earth. That was his focus. That was the fulfillment. A purchased possession is his church. Therefore, he stirs up our thinking and he said, what is it you're focused on? What consumes you? My people. You're my people. What consumes you? Don't get caught up down here. This is temporal, subject to thievery, to decay, to corrosion, to rats and moths. One concentrated focus. Whose slave are you this morning? We worship whatever we serve. One writer puts it like this. Here's how you know what you worship. You worship whatever controls you. What is the true north of your heart? What is the resting place for the needle of your subconscious thoughts and desires? What is the object of your affections? It could be financial security. It could be success. It might be fame. It might be the luxury of me time. Could be the seduction of sex. Could be your sports team. The list goes on. Now, notice this. This is beautiful. This is to whet our appetite for next week. By having one vision, by having one treasure, by having one master, you, as his redeemed people, will have but only one anxiety. Now, is anyone in, don't raise hands. Has anyone ever been gripped by anxiety on any given day, right? It is a terrible thing. 
to be full of anxiety. He says, look, you can rest in having one anxiety. There's one positive command of instruction that he gives in the second part of this text, which we don't have time to look at today, but you can jump ahead to verse 33 and notice what it is. He says quite clearly, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seeking his kingdom and righteousness first. Seeking a deep righteousness that is aware of his presence in our lives. That's why he said, let your yes be yes and your, and your no be no. Seeking the, a hidden righteousness that, that is concentrated on pleasing God, not the applause of men as we looked at the last two weeks. Seeking to pray and to give and to lead a devoted life that is pleasing to God. Seeking his kingship, seeking his righteousness first. And our one anxiety will be just that. All other anxieties will wash away. All other concerns, all provisional concerns. He says, what you need, focus on this. All that you need will be added to you. Fret not, little fretling. That's what he's saying. (laughs) Trip not, troubled one. (laughs) a single focus by having one single focus you will only have one single anxiety that drives your entire life as a blood bought saint a purchased possession that's for next time you know there are some of us here Okay, we, we, we know Christ And we know without a shadow of a doubt that on the day of judgment that we will stand before Jesus Christ and we will be fully acquitted. You know that deep down. You don't even doubt that. And hopefully you're growing not to doubt that. Because he said it is finished, on that day you're fully acquitted because you've already been acquitted at the cross. Job well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into thee. Joy of the Lord. That's what the redeemed will hear. They'll never hear, depart from me. We're eternally secure. Now, as much as we believe that and entrust ourselves to that and are secure in that, so many of us at the same time do not trust our Father to adequately provide for us here. So we have this treasure, and this is where our fear is found in this treasure. If it's finances, we fear, so we embrace it. We embrace what we fear. We have fear losing it. But this is eternal treasure, he points us to. May we not have a misdirected focus, amen? We don't build a treasure here. We must build it in light of eternity. In all that we have been given. So imagery that is bad produces double vision, blurred sight. We become darker and darker and darker. The master-slave relationship that is expressed here, uh, devoted to possessions or, 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 or passions, actually neglects, and don't miss this, despises the God who saved us. Because you can only love one, and the one you love, you despise the other. So we want our reciprocal love to be pure because his initiating love, his continued love, his eternal love for his saints never ceases. It never ends. It never changes. So he says, think. So we're forced to ask a question, three questions, in fact, quite simply, beloved, this morning. Where's your treasure? Where's your spiritual vision? And who is your master? Who do you serve? Where is your allegiance sewn up? Who is it sewn up in? What is it sewn up in? May we never settle for the good and forsake the best. Amen? And oh, oh, do I search my own heart on these matters. Don't think I don't. The passion is birthed in seeing the truth in your own heart first. If you have not passion for the word of God, you need to get out of the pulpit or get out of the area of teaching. Amen? 
Because this is truth, man. This is eternal. The glorious truth of Jesus Christ. He's providing us reasons of of argumentation and logic for his glory and the good of his people. We must think and we must reason by faith because of who he is and who we are in him. You know, it wasn't reason and thinking that saved you. Did you know that? Although God may use that, you didn't think your way into the kingdom. Amen? You didn't reason your way in to to, to being a purchased possession. But after he brings us to saving faith, beloved, one of the foremost means in which the Lord uses to sustain us and sanctify us is thinking through through the living word of God. Don't neglect the commands of Scripture. Embrace them. They're given to you because of the price that he paid. Think about who your father is. Think about what he's like. Think about his kingship. Think about your place in that kingdom. How did you get there in the first place? Jesus Christ, he came to you. So believing disciples are thinking disciples. If not, beloved, how could we ever reason from Scripture? Amen? And we reason from the Scripture. So may we not find our rest. May we not find our peace. May we not find our hope. May we not find our reward here. But may we focus our attention on that which is eternal. May the king and his kingdom be the locus of our focus. Now, beloved, if, if this day... Through this message, you find in your heart a treasure that is not fixed on eternal things. Or there, there is a battle between mammon and your service and devotion to God. Then there's one place to go. One place to go. It's the throne of grace. You cry out to God in your weaknesses. Amen? And I guarantee you, I guarantee when you cry out to God, when he reveals these things to you, and you say you don't want to be torn anymore, I guarantee you he provides the grace, he provides the provision, he provides the power to forsake the other and embrace the single-minded focus of eternal things. He guarantees it and enables you to turn from it. Amen? He enables you to turn from, from sin, from folly. That's grace. So, if you're a Christian here this morning battling with this, this is warring in your heart, cry out to God. Change the locus of my focus. He'll do it. So may God bless his word to your hearts this morning because you see, beloved, we treasure Christ and we come to the table where the ultimate treasure provided and that's the cross of Calvary where he broke his body where he shed his blood in your place where eternal security is found let's go to him in prayer I'm going to ask the men to stand and prepare to serve us this morning our Lord and our God we thank you for the living word of truth. And we ask this morning that you would work in us a healthy distrust of worldly possessions and at the same time build within us a, a greater perspective of eternal things, Lord, that our treasure would be found in and through you, that our treasure would be fixed on that which is eternal. Lord, where we are weak and we're all weak and we're all needy, desperately needy, help us to, to refocus, may the place of focus begin with the Mount of Calvary and proceed from there and to live in response to all that's been provided us through your son, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, as the men serve you communion this morning, friends, um, this table is for Christians alone. This table is for those who have um, turned to Christ alone for salvation. And if you're not in Christ this morning, perhaps you have been convicted under the powerful word of God 
and you realize that you can't do this on your own, you need a Savior, Christ is the only one, Christ is the only way, for He is the eternal truth, then I'm going to ask that you hold off. And uh, perhaps next time, you know, after we talk about this, you can partake with the family of God. Because this is for the church, this is for blood-bought saints. Beloved, think about this. Remember we looked at the, that passage from First Peter earlier this morning. A, a heavily persecuted people of God. And, and Peter writes this epistle um, to encourage them that in the midst of their suffering, that they've already been blessed by God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance. And that inheritance, he says, is imperishable. It's undefiled. It is unfading. It is kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded. He guards you. Through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just as he was refining those dear people, he's refining you. He's refining us this very moment. You and I, beloved, have imperfections that often rob us of the strength and beauty of Almighty God. Amen? Happened to me yesterday. Happened to me yesterday. You're filled up with the truth. I shared this in Sunday school. God fills you with the truth. You're this vessel overflowing, hopefully, with what's being poured into you. And this cup got bumped yesterday. And when this cup got bumped yesterday, it wasn't the spring of life flowing out. It was bitterness that came out because some guy laid his horn on me yesterday and raised his fist at me and And because of my perceived rights to ever be offended in such a way, it was clearly revealed, oh, the sin that is still in me. Amen? He's refining us. God will take you, beloved, where you never intended to go in order to provide within you what you could never achieve on your own. That's part of being refined. So he causes us to think, to redirect our focus. So that in the midst of trial, in the midst of grief, where we often wonder, where's the grace of God in my life? It's right there. It's here now. All the while, in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the temptation, his grace is ever abounding. It just doesn't happen to be the grace of relief or release at this point. Amen? It is a refinement nonetheless. He 
He's gracious. That's what the table reminds us of, beloved. This is the gospel made visible. This is the place where sinners have laid their lives down as recipients of the grace of Jesus Christ. Where he came and actively upheld the law of the Father, passively laid down his life in our place, providing us a righteousness we could never attain on our own. He became sin. So that you and I can become the very righteousness of God. A forgiven people. We're reminded of this glorious truth. Let's pray. Our eternal and mighty God, we gather here at your table and we acknowledge your grace to us. And may we receive the cup and may we receive the bread by faith, mindful of the heavenly mercies bestowed upon us in Christ your Son by the power and the presence and the person of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.